You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, we do ask that as we have opened your word that you would speak to us now of your truth, you'd guide our understanding in this, that you would help us to be able to grasp the truth and to live into this truth that you have revealed to us. We ask this in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a couple of seats in there for overhearing. I don't know, since when did Revelation get popular? John? No, no. Well, there's a couple of seats, so grab the seats and there's one here. I think that'll cover everybody. There's two in there. I know you're going to leave early, but whenever you leave is fine. Um, Here's a seat. Okay. If you follow on the study, number one, the opening of seals one by one is a literary device enabling John to narrate a series of visions to prepare for the revelation of the contents of the scroll. Remember, there is in the hand of God a scroll. No one can open that scroll, and John weeps. And with his weeping, I tied that into Nietzsche's nihilism and the despair that we would have if there is no more of the story. If there is not a consummation to salvation, if this is it, if this is all there is, you and I would weep. And John is in that state, in that praying imagination of what it would be like if this is all there is. But... The mighty angel says to John, stop weeping, for there is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns, and the lion of the tribe of Judah is none other than one who is a lamb looking as if it were slain. And lamb becomes John's choice term for Jesus Christ throughout his epistle. He uses it 28 times. And we already have had a sense of the significance of numbers, four times seven. Four being the numerical symbol for north, south, east, and west, the whole creation. Seven being a picture of completeness. And four times seven, John is speaking when he uses lamb 28 times to drive home the truth that at the core of salvation history is the redemption that God provides. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then you have the four horses of the apocalypse. 
probably one of the most famous images that are is in the book of Revelation. You remember how Tolkien uses it in his Lord of the Rings? Those black horses pounding out. It's a very, it's a great visual to have in mind. Um, and these four horses of the apocalypse, I'm going to suggest to you, is a picture of evil today running rampant. And it's always run like this ever since the fall. John is not introducing some futuristic scenario to come. This is how life has been. These four horses of conquest, of death, of starvation, of disease, this is what's been running rampant ever since the fall of man. This is the introduction. The seals have to be, all seven seals have to be broken before we get to the news of the future, the description of the consummation of salvation. And this is the prelude to that opening revelation. And John is not giving us any new news here, but he is describing and I think he's also explaining what is the purpose for these four horses of the apocalypse. So I say what is coming is already here. Number three, John's inspired vision begins by exploring the extent and the complexity of evil. There's a deep affinity between what the early church experienced in the first century and what the body of Christ experiences in the 21st century. So there's this fourfold devastating impact of evil. Evil charges into our lives, Christian or not, one is coping with these four horses. Number five, conquest, violence, famine, and death come charging at us like a team of wild horses. Of all people, and this is one of the aspects that is helpful here, I think, we should not be surprised by evil. The oncologist is not surprised by cancer. She or he deals with that every day. Sometimes I can't imagine how that can be your, your work as an oncologist. But I have a very good friend who's a wonderful Christian. And to me, he's a pastor physician. He really he's really gifted. He really does know how to deal daily deal with people that are suffering cancer. He's not surprised by cancer. He certainly doesn't take it lightly. And he's a bit of a warrior on behalf of those who suffer. That's what I think John is getting at in terms of Christians not being surprised by evil. This is life. This is how evil is coming at us. And in his way, the four living creatures who surround the throne are basically saying, come on, come on. And you have to kind of understand now the story, the redemptive story that's going to deal with this. We will deal with this, God says, in effect. We will deal with these, this galloping evil. Number six, the four horses signify the forces of evil 
harnessed by the power of God for divine purposes for judgment. Why the come on? Now, this is what is hard for 21st century Christians, I think, to wrestle with that isn't, wasn't so hard for first century Christians to wrestle with. This kind of galloping evil that runs into our life, stampedes into our life, was meant to drive us to God and his mercy and his redemption. In our culture, that's not the impact. Evil seems to beget evil, and evil becomes the reason why you can't believe in God. That is what might be contrary to the difference between, I think, the first century household of faith that saw evil as a reason to run to God for deliverance, to trust in God, to be dependent upon God, that only God could save and redeem. Here we have built up a lot of insulation, uh, the buffered self, trying to protect ourselves from the onslaughts of evil. And this is good. I'm not in any way knocking that. But to see evil as a redemptive aspect that drives people to God is something that we, I think, struggle with. This image of the four horses comes out of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah has two visions in his book, uh, in his short uh, prophecy. One vision is of three horses that come in at dusk, and they report, they're a scouting team, and they report in the first chapter of Zechariah, they report that the world's at peace. And the response from God is, this isn't going to work. If the world is at peace, uh, we're going to have to disrupt that because it's a peace of the kind of the Tower of Babel. It's a peace that people are self-satisfied. It's a peace that people are complacent. Uh, it's a peace of being uh, self-made. Uh, it's, it's a wrong kind of peace. And Zechariah describes that. And then he finishes up his visions of four chariots that have gone out around the world uh, again, to uh, describe and to sort of take the temperature of the earth in terms of its relationship with God. So from these images in Zechariah, John builds in his praying imagination these four horses of the apocalypse. Number eight, I'm giving here, beginning to give here, several reasons why I think these four horses of the apocalypse are important. The power of these images conveys a picture of evil that the followers of the Lamb are meant to grasp. Five truths shape our understanding. The first truth about evil is that Christ has evil conquered. In this world, you will have trouble. Is true enough, but Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the worlds. So from John's standpoint, as he starts to explain this stampede of evil, he does so in the context that God says, in effect, I got this. I will handle this. This has already been dealt with in the cross. The victory is assured. Evil is numbered, it's classified, it's cataloged like a veteran cop or a surgeon who says to himself, I've seen it all. Believers should not be overwhelmed by evil. We've been briefed. 
So the takeaway is don't be surprised by evil. And God's got this. You may go through hell, but he's got it. And he'll save you in the end. There's a great deal of realism about the Christian faith. And it should be presented as such. Number nine, or the second truth about evil, is that we live with the threat of the stampede of evil coming at us from all directions. The human condition is vulnerable to violence, scarcity, and disease. This is why we have armies, police, firefighters, and government. We work against the impact of evil through medicine and education. The followers of the Lamb are called upon to mitigate the impact of these wild horses. You got that sentence? The followers of the Lamb are called upon to mitigate the impact of these wild horses. That's our job. We all have a job. This is all part of the salt and light. This is part of the impact of the kingdom ethic. This is what we're designed to do. Some aspect of your family life, of your personal life, of your vocational life is involved in mitigating against the forces of evil. Uh, it is the befriending. It is the serving. It is the healing. It is the teaching. It is the science. It is the research. All of that plays into mitigating against the forces of evil. This is what it means to be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. Christ's disciples seek to curve the lust for war, reverse humanity's destructive ways, we seek to overcome famine and starvation and defend the powerless and comfort the grieving. Number 10, the third truth is that no matter how righteous we are in Christ, we live under the threat of the stampede of evil. John's fourfold description of judgment corresponds to Ezekiel's prophecy against Jerusalem. The Lord announced that he would send four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague against Jerusalem. The Lord stressed to Ezekiel that the judgment was inevitable and inescapable. Us, you and I, we can't get out from under that stampede. I think it applies today as it applied to the Israelites in Ezekiel's day. Number 11, the fourth truth about evil is that these horses run wild, wrecking havoc, but their impact does not cause humankind to turn to God. Given the chaos of our world and you know just if you just take the news from this week uh, the state of Venezuela the state of Chile the state of Haiti the state of Hong Kong um, the state of our own nation and its uh, its divisions uh, there's just sort of totalitarian rule and, and chaos and and conflict um, I know it's enough for some of you to stop listening to the news because you find yourself discouraged and depressed by it. And here's, I think, a bottom line in the book of Revelation is it's not going to get better until God ends it. We'll never uh, be able to rise up out of evil Humanity will never be able to do that. Uh, we are fighting a battle that ultimately God wins. 
and we are agents of his kingdom on this side of eternity. But it's not until that consummation, it's not until that final judgment that brings both salvation and justice that we will see an end to evil. Medicine and humanitarian effort, the wisdom of our science, distribution of product, all of that's so important to do. But let's not live with the illusion that somehow we're going to progress out of the state of evil that we confront and live in. It should drive people to God. Instead, you know, the message here is really no different than Romans 1. God gives people up to their desires, their passions, their longings, their anti-God expressions. And that ought to, it ought to be very evident to people that there is a creator and now the witness of revelation of a redeemer. But there is a resistance to that. The fifth truth about evil, number 12 in your study guide, is that the apocalyptic horses of conquest, revolution, famine, and disease are catalysts for prayer and worship. (coughs) The followers of the Lamb are vulnerable to suffering just like everyone else, but what embitters and emerges others, enrages others, ought to drive the believer to Christ. Living as we do in an evil and hostile environment, the followers of the Lamb are dependent on the mercies of God. The fifth seal is going to be a picture of the saints under the altar praying, but take my summer reading list. The Yates quote at the top of the page, lamenting the disintegration of civilization in his poem, The Second Coming. We've already referenced this quote, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. These are the books that I read uh, in July and August, and I didn't necessarily choose them with this uh, thought in mind. But each one was depressingly focused on our world. Uh, Kathleen uh, Velo, a history prof at the University of Chicago, has spent 10 years looking into the post-Vietnam paramilitary alt-right response. Vietnam vets coming back discouraged feeling betrayed from the federal government for their lack of care and all of that, and as well as a civilian population that was all set to hone in on this um, anti-Jew, anti-black agenda. Uh, The impact of the Turner Diaries she explores. It's an interesting read. Bello reports on Ruby Ridge, on Waco, the bombing of Oklahoma City, and concludes with a description of the 2015 shooting of nine black worshipers at the Bible study at Charleston, South Carolina. Dylan Roof used all sorts of uh, Nazi-type paraphernalia, paraphernalia, and in his concern, 
was to foment a race war. He wanted to be the trigger that would bring that about. That evil pervades in our country. It's there, kind of like a bomb that can be triggered. The second book I read, Falter, has the human game begun to play itself out. And Bill McKibben, who has been a climate change uh, concerned writer and scientist, claims that because of ecological destruction and technological hubris, the human experiment is now in question. McKibben concludes his first chapter by saying, the human game we've been playing has no rules and no end. Now, you see, I definitely play. I think that our humanity is under God's rules, God's creation, God's redemption. He's writing as a secularist. The human game we've been playing has no rules and no end, but it does come with two logical imperatives. The first is to keep it going, and the second to keep it human. And he sees what is happening in terms of climate and what is happening in terms of technology as both threatening humanity's existence. He writes, privilege lies in obliviousness. White privilege, for instance, involves being able to reliably forget that race matters. And one of the great privileges of living in the affluent parts of the modern world is that we've been able to forget that the natural world even exists. In our lifetimes, in the lifetimes of our parents, it served us mostly as a backdrop. The size of the board on which we've been playing the game is going to get considerably smaller. He writes, climate change is a negotiation between human beings and physics, and physics doesn't compromise. Past a certain point, there's no room to maneuver. The point is clearly upon us. It's not a good sign that the largest physical structures on our planet, its ice caps, its barrier reefs, its rainforests, rainforests are disappearing before our eyes. So, problem from hell. Governments prefer to evade it. Human psychology is not designed to cope with it. It's happening too fast. I'm all, if you're wondering why I'm doing what I'm doing, these are the four horses of the apocalypse running at us. He goes on to talk about uh, technology, but uh, let's take the third paragraph down. In 2018, you see where I'm reading, in 2018, the Centers for Disease Control released startling new statistics on suicide in America. Since 1999, it has gone up by 25% across most ethnic and age groups. Those are astonishing numbers and hard at first to explain. During these same years, far more people have been able to find treatment for depression and anxiety. Clay Routledge is a behavioral scientist at the State University of Dakota, North Dakota, where he saw a 58% rise in suicides, the largest in any states, any state. And Rutledge says, humans, he wrote recently, require not just food and shelter, but meaning and purpose. We can't easily manufacture it on our own. The psychological literature suggests that close relationships with other people are our greatest existential resource. 
You know, we've said here before that not only salvation is a gift, but significance is a gift. And we can't invent our significance, our meaning, and our purpose. We receive significance from God. Uh, we are made in his image. But as we continue to progress in our modern, enlightened culture, we are putting a tremendous burden on people to arrive at their own identity and to arrive at their own significance. And that's not working well for us. The third book, Timothy Weingard's book, The Mosquito. I don't know. Can you imagine writing a four to five hundred page book on the mosquito? He writes at the beginning, we are at war with the mosquito. Since 2000, the annual average number of human deaths caused by the mosquito has hovered around two million. Two million deaths attributed to the mosquito. The pale horse running hard into our modern era. The mosquito has killed more people than any other cause of death in human history. Yet the mosquito does not directly harm anyone. It is the toxic and highly evolved diseases she transmits that cause an endless barrage of desolation and death. Without her, however, these sinister pathogens could not be transferred or vectored to humans nor continue their cyclical contagion. Weingart concludes with, uh, I'm jumping here, of course, from uh, page uh, 1 and 2 to page 430, but Dr. Rupert Boyce, founder of the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, bluntly stated in 1909 that the fate of human civilization would be decided by one simple question, mosquito or man? This has been the most important survival question asked by both our modern species and our homoid ancestors. She has ruled the earth for 190 million years and is killed with unremitting, unremitting potency for most of her unrivaled reign of terror. Across the ages, she has imposed her will on humanity, has dictated the course of history, the mosquitoes sponsored both the rise and fall of ancient empires. She gave birth to independent nations. But I would imagine that none of you have thought about the mosquito this way at all. How it has factored into disease and war. Uh, one of the huge issues that impacted Rome was the swamps that surrounded Rome as a breeding ground. And at times... The people, the indigenous people, have been able to adapt and have suffered the consequences of mosquitoes to the point where there's a built-up immunity in their system and among the people. And they've sometimes known that the swamps were dangerous, but they've kept them there because of the foreign invaders. And the invaders would not have the built-up immunity. But it's just, I, my mind has never gone to the mosquito. But the four horses of the apocalypse of John caused me to think about the various ways that evil impacts us. And then from that, from that, both to work in a vocational sense against that evil, because God has called us to that, to, to pray. And this brings us to 
the fifth seal. We have to move really rapidly here for the next couple minutes because there's one thing I especially want you to see. Number 13, when the fifth seal is broken and we're startled by the cry of martyrs, the fifth seal reveals an extraordinary prayer meeting. The saints who've gone before have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They humbly confess their need for God's grace and zealously pray for the salvation and judgment of God. John envisions them under the altar. And now don't picture here a literal basement kind of situation. This is not meant for you to picture or to graphically display. But they're under this altar praying as if they're under the sacrifice of Christ praying. Number 14, the faithful saints cry out to the sovereign Lord, holy and true, asking how long the wild horses of judgment and persecution will be allowed to run wild. The answer comes back, and this is what's really surprising, until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. The time of the end, in this instance, is measured by not the number of conversions, but by the number of martyrdoms. Until the complete number of martyrs we're sobered by the fact that time is measured not in conversions, but in martyrdoms. Number 15, John's spirit-inspired vision calls for courage, endurance, perseverance. When the peace and power of Christ are available, why settle for the survival <laughs> tactics of the world? Christians believe that there's a real hope in a world that is constantly trying to adapt to hopelessness. I think the inspiration for fighting evil ought to come from the gospel. And I don't think that gospel leads to a kind of quietism or a, an indifference or a complacency. I think it is that which inspires a resilience and a resistance to that which is evil with the help of God and a dependence upon his mercy. I think that's, our, that's John's point. The sixth and final seal. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. And then what gets described we're running out of time here, what gets described is the end. The cataclysmic, apocalyptic end. Now this is where it gets complicated in reading the book of Revelation because the end is described seven times. So picture not a linear line of history, but picture a spiraling intensity. And so John comes to this point after the four horses of the apocalypse and the fifth seal of the martyrs praying underneath the altar to a sixth description of the end. But it's not the end. It's the end, but it's not the end. And he'll keep describing this. Always, you're never very far from earth and heaven, never very far from worship and judgment in this spiraling intensity that is meant to prepare a resilient church to stand against the wiles of the devil. I picture those seven ends on the final page. You have the first one in chapter 6, and then 9, 20, 11, 13, 14, 19, chapter 16, verse 17, chapter 18, 21, chapter 19, 17. 
In our slow movement through the book of Revelation, um, we will look and see the, the sense, of, sense of John listing those ends and using them in his spiraling intensity. The evil that should drive people to God is resisted. The evil that we should not be surprised by should make us who follow Christ all that much more dependent upon God and all that much more inspired to resist the evil in the name of Christ for his sake and for his kingdom. It's a lot here for us to take in. Um, but I don't want us surprised by evil. I want us aware of the resources that God has given to us in order to deal with evil. And I wish now we had an hour to talk about it. I'm going to have to pray. I hear the bells. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for my sisters and brothers in Christ. Please guide this week's resistance to the evil and our dependence upon you for your strength, mercy, and wisdom. Together we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.